make sure that uh, that program doesn't contain controversial subjects and uh, you're not impolite to people. No, definitely not, Dad. You know me. I'm never, <laughs> ever controversial or yeah, impolite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Welcome to Conversations with your lovable, never pisses anyone off, ex-Muslim host, Ina. Keeping it non-controversial. Welcome to episode 59 with journalist, author, and epic troller of anti-Muslims, Hussein Kesvani. His book, Follow Me Aki, is such an interesting glance into being Muslim online, covering topics like Muslim gamers, Muslim memes, the Muslim alt-right, Muslim Me Too, Islamic dating apps, and anti-Muslim online culture, and just a whole lot more. So do check out his book and give him a follow on Twitter over at H-K-E-S-V-A-N-I. Hussein also writes fascinating articles about intersections most people wouldn't even think of, like uh, dropping acid for Allah, or um, anti-Muslim bigotry related to ass-wiping. He's... <laughs> He's been on the show before, too, all the way back in 2017 to chat about the topic of masturbating while Muslim. So much interesting stuff coming from Hussein. This is going to be a fun-filled chat. I can sense it already. But before we dive in, dear listeners, if you enjoy this show, and there are thousands of you who listen please consider supporting via Patreon, because without you, small shows like this simply can't survive. And these episodes do take a lot of time and effort and research and coordination to make happen, so any help is appreciated. Just head on over to patreon.com forward slash nice mangoes, no E in mangoes, and join today. Alrighty. Now let's uh, get right into this conversation. Hello, Hussein. Hi. Thank you for uh, bringing me back. Yeah, it's so good to talk to you again. I'm so sorry it took so long. I just, uh, you know, stopped to have a baby. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what an inconvenience to like the, the schedule of podcasts. <laughs> I know, I know. I should be more thoughtful. Oh, but I'm glad we're making this happen today. So much to talk about. And it's been so long that I've been yeah. waiting to have this conversation. So yeah. Talk to me about your book. How's it going? How has it been received? Well, I actually remembered the last time we spoke, it was 2017. I was in a semi-noisy coffee shop in London. Yeah. Um, and I was working on the book, actually, like when uh, I just, this was like the beginning of the writing stages. Uh, and a lot of it kind of stemmed from that piece that we spoke about, about masturbating while Muslim. Um, because I think it opened up an interesting avenue for me anyway, in terms of exploring what Muslim identity and culture was without it necessarily being like glib or being a little bit, um, like working with dichotomies of good Muslim, bad Muslim, stuff like that. I wanted to kind of look at what's it like being like a young person trying to kind of discover your identity, uh, and trying to like reconcile various identities being given to you. So then as I was writing that book, I kind of took a similar principle of everyone that I approached, which was that I wanted to kind of see how a prescribed religious identity kind of manifests in different ways. So I say this to a lot of kind of Muslims I speak to, which is that 
almost everyone that I interviewed were very forthright in saying that like they were Muslim and their Muslim identity was very strong and they wouldn't question like their faith in Islam in any way. But the way that it manifested was really different. So the way in which they kind of like perceived and enacted their truths were very, very different to each other. And that alone was enough to kind of break through this myth that like Islam exists as one thing or that it, it should exist as one thing. And there was like, obviously like, you know, I didn't write a lot about myself in that book. I write about a little bit about myself at the beginning and I think at the end. Um, but it was also kind of this thing that I was trying to go through, which was that I'm not, you know, I, religion is an important thing to me. It's an important kind of aspect of my identity. Um, I still practice some religious stuff but my reasons for kind of practicing aren't the same as everyone else's. And I was really curious as to like why I held on to certain things and didn't hold on to other things or why I felt that some aspects of practice were more important to me than others. And I wanted to speak to people whose other aspects of practice meant more to them. And I also just wanted to figure out like, what's it like when you have all these different ideological and reactionary forces um, manifesting and how does like religion fit into that and I think that's we're going to be speaking a little bit more in this conversation about those things so I won't give too much away just yet. Yeah I mean it, these things have always interested me too and I think that's why I feel like uh, I can relate to your work so much because of these intersections that you focus on like some yeah. of my work also focuses on like weird intersections like you know how Saudi feminists are dealing with the alt-right and like sure. the IDW or like how the IDW is um, kind of having an impact in places like Pakistan and being yeah. used Peterson's book is being used to sell like you know traditional well not traditional but like modern shalwar kameez outfits yeah. and stuff like bizarre <laughs> shit and um yeah you know i've talked with contrapoints about fascist fashion and other people about fascist yeah. feminism you know quote unquote yeah. feminism so i really enjoy the way that you um explore these overlaps and um just the the way modern islam manifests you know because because of the internet has yeah. always really fascinated me as well. Like, you know, like how you've talked about the <laughs> Muslim nofap reddits and right <laughs> uh, things like that. It, yeah. It's it's weird, and and it completely disproves this um, IDWS new atheist type of idea that Islam is this you know static, yeah. rigid, just you know, what's written in the books, right. and that's it. And that really doesn't even begin to cover the, I guess, the depths of the human experience yeah. with religion, right? Yeah, and I think even in, like, the IDW space, this is happening right now. Like, um, I think when we spoke about it in 2017, this was, like, I think at the kind of high point of the IDW where they kind of perpetuated this kind of myth that, oh, we kind of have you know, significant differences. Some of us are religious, some of us aren't, some of us are scientists, some of us are political um, commentators, some of us are psychologists. Um, but we all kind of unite under the basis that like um, real diversity is the diversity of ideas. And like fast forward to 2020, and that IDW seems to be crumbling in lots of different ways. Um, you know, Joe Rogan has sort of distanced himself from it. Uh, David Rubin has decided that he now believes in God from what I, from what I, from what I saw <laughs> or like that his time with Gordon Peterson kind of made him sort of just conveniently around about the time that like his viewing figures have gone like taken a significant hit and even 
his like subreddit is are just people kind of his own fans kind of saying <laughs> he's like a dumbass. Um, he's decided to kind of like pivot to God now. Um, and then you have like the other kind of minor IDW players who, and they just don't seem very cohesive, right? Um, so this whole idea that like the real diversity is the diversity of ideas is kind of bullshit. Like, and absolutely because they right. don't like any ideas that don't agree with them. Right. But also like, it's the idea that you can't have that kind of ideological group if no one has the same type of ideological like boundaries and that people aren't kind of fighting for like a particular cause, you know, that's not how these like systems work. You know, it's just pretense for them this whole diversity of ideas thing. They are right. completely united in their anti-leftness and they like to pretend yeah. that they are very diverse and they just skip over the parts where they all agree, like the 90% of everything, that we hate the left, we hate the SJWs, we hate diversity, we don't yeah. like immigration, we don't like Muslims, and all of that. We don't like feminists and trans people. and um, Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, I guess it's been interesting for me to kind of just look at how they're still pretending to be cohesive. And you're right in kind of the sense that the only kind of uniting factor is like their various degrees of like dislike towards leftist politics. Yeah. Um, and I think that as we kind of like head closer to, to the 2020 election, we're going to find that like we're going to find some kind of you know reconciliation with that aspect. And it'll be this new reconciliation where it's like they won't even call themselves like an intellectual diversity. They'll call them, you know, they'll kind of say, well, we have different opinions on lots of different things. But the thing that we are united against is that like, you know, America should be a free country and therefore we must get rid of Bernie Sanders by all costs. Um, and then he'll just go into his other, but I, I guess like the point I was like trying to make was that in many, like in a lot of ways, these guys started out as a religion and they continue to be a type of religious group. And it's been, and it's been fun to see how that's like mirrored in different ways and how, even though my book was about Muslims, so much of what I wrote about was really about how internet culture forms and kind of breaks apart and forms again and breaks apart. Mm. And you could definitely apply that to the IDW space, like with no doubt. I could have written a book about the IDW and like the same kind of chapter structures and like the same types of stories you like, you definitely hear. Hmm. And what I found fascinating is uh, this one part where you speak to a Muslim Jordan Peterson supporter, yeah. <laughs> where yeah. he uh, goes on about how Jordan Peterson has actually brought him closer to Islam. And I think, yeah. you know, was making excuses for how he's not really anti-Muslim. He just doesn't know enough, things like that. Yeah, you yeah. Know? yeah. Um, because he like, yeah, because I guess it was more like the trad stuff, right? And like, I know you've spoken about it before and we've spoken about this before. Um, but it was kind of like, well, we can like look past some of, the, some of the more like distasteful elements of Jordan Peterson's like Christianity, for example, or we can look past some of like the more distasteful views about his like what he can what he perceives to be threats to Western civilization. Spoiler, like it's immigration, right? Um, like you can look past all that if what he's at like what we actually want him to advocate on like a national stage is that actually patriarchy is good and. Um, if we want society to kind of function better, we should have more patriarchy. Uh, and, you know, just the way and when you see other groups who are not Muslims kind of agreeing with that as well, um, specifically like groups of like lonely young men who you come across in like, you know, gaming channels and stuff like that, you know, that kind of view becomes reinforced. Right. So then suddenly like the Islam component becomes less you know less important i think in the past kind of few years since we last spoke i think we found we've seen that like even though there is definitely a considerable amount of anti-muslim hatred and anti-muslim sentiment i would say that like 
that has kind of at least, you know, the and the anti like feminist sentiment, for example, has definitely grown on par. The anti like transgender sentiments have grown on par. Yeah. So now there are like multiple perceived quote unquote enemies. Um, which means that like, you know, and we, you know, again, we could see this with examples of like Milo Yiannopoulos, for example, who was able to kind of push part, push away like parts of like the definitely like anti-gay, anti-LGBT mm-hmm, stuff mm-hmm. because it was like, well, you know, um, I also dislike this particular group. So this kind of like works for me. It's like very pick and choose. And again, like I think so much of my book was about people who were in some way or another picking and choosing stuff, right? Yeah. And that the way that they reconciled their faith and the way that they reconciled kind of deep religious questions was not a turn to orthodoxy, but rather picking and choosing things that they really liked and kind of dismissing or kind of disregarding things that they felt were not kind of cohesive to their worldview. Yeah. I'm just going to read a quote from from that section of your book, which I thought really works well um, in this conversation. Ahmed told me, referring to videos of Peterson, warning about the threats of postmodernism in the West. For Ahmed, Peterson's message is personal to him. So this is now Ahmed speaking. He's not just referring to white communities. I've seen it in my own Muslim community. When liberals take over and Islam becomes less important, it leads to corruption. Peterson can see that. He knows how to articulate it, too. (laughs) It's just, ah, I mean, what do you think Peterson would think of um, these conservative Muslims thinking that, you know, Peterson is this hero for bringing back trad life, you know? Yeah, I think, I don't know. um, I've been interested in every time Jordan Peterson has been asked about what are his views on... um, what are his views on uh like islam he's been very evasive i think for him but, it's like this but is, still yeah. clear enough to know that he's pretty fucking hateful you know like yeah yeah but i think at the same time he's just been um uh i guess he's been um he knows how to like market himself really well right and yeah. i think for him like he's always kind of whether this is true or not is a different question but he's always set his mission as being I'm here to kind of save young men and I'm here to kind of teach young men the value of responsibility and it doesn't matter where they come from because these you know my self-help advice is like universal right in the same way that lots of kind of self-help gurus are what yeah was like you know lots of self-help gurus have lots of problematic views right they have lots of um, you know, they have a lot of problematic views when it comes to women or when it mm. comes to gay people and stuff like that. But they market their advice as being universal, i.e. Mm. And, they, and they often kind of pivot towards that. So in many ways, he's using a playbook that has been used by the likes of like Tony, like Tony Robbins and, uh, you know, Gary Vee and like all these guys. Right. It's like a pre-made formula that can work really, really well among a particular demographic of people. Mm. Then he just like someone put it someone put it to me quite succinctly where it's like he takes this formula that works really well at a time when you have a lot of kind of like genuine economic anxiety and you have generational wealth um you know divides and all these kind of really big economic disparities and he mixes it with like you know greek mythology right the idea that you know, your one man can kind of save a civilization, mm. all these kind of like narratives, and you can be that one man, right? Mm-hmm. You can like change that. So he kind of provides a hero narrative, like he provides the Joseph Campbell narrative for... What, what yeah. do you make of this recent Jordan Peterson story of him being in oh, Russia that- in a coma and... 
I don't, I don't know. I mean, uh, yeah, I, I don't, I don't really know. Um, because I'm trying to be very empathetic, right? Yeah. Cause it's kind of like, I hear that like his wife had cancer yeah. and like when you have that much attention and publicity, it's kind of, that's can be really tough. Right. Yeah. Um, so I don't like want to be the person who like gloats and stuff, but I think it's also like, I think it's also, um, a wake up call for lots of his ardent supporters, which is like, this advice can only take you so far, right? You know, you still need, like there are still kind of needs that you have in the world. You still kind of have to like rely on other people. And those people aren't always going to see eye to eye to you. Um, and I think at the same time, there's something interesting going on in that space anyway, where, and I wrote about this for Mel Magazine like a couple months ago, which was that you have like Arden Jordan Peterson fans who have followed his readings and his teachings and all that stuff, right? And they kind of realized that, okay, uh, my life hasn't really improved that much since like I started cleaning my room and petting cats and all that stuff, right? <laughs> or like starting like doing a schedule and everything. Um, in the same way that like, you know, anyone who follows you know, YouTube life advice and stuff. You know, one of my kind of, one of my real uh, guilty pleasures is I love watching kind of morning routine videos and like just these kind of scheduling and organization videos. And I think that says a lot to me because I'm genuinely quite a disorganized person. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, I have a fantasy of like one day just being organized. Like extremely uh, organized. Uh, <laughs> uh, um, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I really want to be that kind of person. So I fantasize about it, you know. Mm. I think, so some of these guys have actually taken that advice and they've been like, I followed it to a T, I've done like the diet, I've done the schedule, I've done all that stuff and my life hasn't really changed because my material situations haven't changed, right? Um, there is not, you know, I can, you know, he they followed the Peterson's advice of clean your own room first, then think about saving the world. You know, they've cleaned their room and it's like, well, I still have the shitty job. I still can't get a girlfriend. Uh, my parents still like hate me, etc. So then they turn to like more reactionary figures. So like this is where guys like Nick Fuentes has come as in. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure if I've spoken about him, but Nick Fuentes has like really like gone after Peterson a lot in his videos and on, on his tweets and everything. And just for the audience, uh, can you just explain quickly who Nick Fuentes is? I, I don't really know too much about him. All I know is that he was part of like the Trump wing of like the right wing internet. And then over time, he's just become like more of a reactionary. And he's, yeah, he's a Holocaust right. denier, like basically yeah. an internet and his, Nazi. And his, right? like, his like signal channel and his telegram channel is just filled with like anti-Semitic, like Groper, like they call themselves like the Gropers. They still use like the, the old like anti real anti-semitic pepe stuff he thinks that he's much more genuine than like richard spencer for example and he has like big like big supporters who are like very young guys right like gen z and everything so um you know the idea that like zoomers who are against jordan peterson are kind of like his demographic and it only took a very short amount of time to get there right so i think mm. even peterson's own brand of like conservatism is really diminishing not that it had like a big shelf life anyway. And I think anyone could have told you like, this does not have like a big shelf life. And also um, because his current situation, unfortunate as it is, I mean, it, it really does poke a hole in all his, mm. oh, I've got the 12 rules for life and, uh, you know, get your own house in order before you talk about anyone else kind of bullshit because he doesn't live by those things himself, right? And uh, he's been shitting on other people 
constantly when his own right. house hasn't been in order. We don't necessarily know how much of that advice he puts into like action or like how much he, because again, his advice is for young men. Right. And, um, you know, so I kind of want to like take him in good faith in that respect, but I think it's more along the lines of, you know, you don't, you know, life is like as in his own words, life is a complicated thing. So why the hell would like these simple hacks, like make it any better. Right. And it's more like the fact that he dismissed any sort of like structural reason as to why young men face anxiety or why like young men face these kind of like unprecedented levels of, Mm. um, depression. Right. Or like even kind of entertaining the idea that like this might have something to do with like capitalism. This might have something to do with like insecure jobs. Unless that or, structural reason is like the evil SJWs. Right. right that's, that's the only reason it's like fem- feminists are taking you down, but nothing else. It's nothing yeah. to do with like racial, like, you know, racial hierarchies. It's nothing to do with like wealth acquisition. No, no, those hierarchies are good <laughs> because of lobsters. Right. Um, so I think what has happened is that it's kind of exposed the incoherence of what he's been selling and something that we all knew when it came out, but like, and um, the I whole kind of, yeah. all beef diet and how it's supposed to make you superhuman, super strong. Right. And right. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I, I've been tempted to try it every so often, but what? like at, at the moment I'm, um, I'm trying to like, I've, I've gone like vegetarian for a bit so you I'm should make a off. muslim you should make a muslim one like the all halal beef diet i mean you know there are like some muslim bodybuilders who do that right like they go on just like these kind of meat like they call them like meat fasts so oh, really? they fast all day and then they just eat protein because they think that like so their their theory and they and this happens every ramadan like you know they kind of say that like you know, you should eat a lot during Ramadan, but you shouldn't be eating carbohydrates because mm. carbohydrates are the things that are making you gain weight. It's making you slow. Mm. It'll make your like prayers bad. But if you eat just like meat, like lamb and chicken and stuff like that, mm. um, like, you know, you'll have loads of energy, which means that even after like Dari, you can go for a workout, right? Mm. Um, wow, I have not really explored the uh, bodybuilding slash Ramadan intersection very it's, much. Uh, it's, 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 it's yeah, it's wild. It's kind of it's 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 really wild, actually. It's one of my favorite. That's um, fascinating because I've been exploring the other end uh, and something I personally experienced and did a, a short podcast about, um, you know, eating disorders and Ramadan. Yeah, uh, yeah. So that's interesting that the other like the, the other side of this exists. Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just to round off this conversation, I'm going to continue with that quote because. It, it was all sorts of fascinating to me. And as you were saying, it kind of mirrors um, the cognitive dissonance that I see coming from atheists who were like super Peterson fans, like uh, as he was selling this trad Christian stuff. So, okay, so here we go. There was all the Islamophobia, all the anti-Muslim hate on most forums I was part of, he says. On the other hand, Muslim forums would be filled with liberals who condone things like same-sex marriage, transgenderism, feminism, things that I knew were wrong. But whenever I brought it up, I would be attacked, sent hate messages, and even banned from groups. Oh, those evil liberal Muslims. Poor guy. (laughs) Okay. Peterson's ascent as one of the Internet's most well-known and influential figures meant that for the first time, Ahmed came across communities that held values which were, by and large, in tune with his. I know that Peterson's fans are hostile to Islam, Ahmed says, but the messages he is spreading are, at the core, very Islamic. 
He promotes studying and acquiring knowledge, being respectful to your parents, the importance of marriage and monogamy. They are all Islamic values. Ahmed even credits the professor with bringing him closer to Islam. <laughs> I made him sound really good. I remember doing that interview and like it was so incoherent and like... <laughs> I like I had to like piece together like loads of sentences to, like make an it sound incoherent better. Peterson fan you say um oh my goodness I mean, I mean he was a younger I mean I don't know and like I know that like speaking to journalists could be a little bit intimidating uh maybe but um no I was just really surprised like you like someone reading that back to me was like wow like he sounds really good and then I realized why <laughs> he sounds really good um but yeah no I think like he touched on this stuff really well which was again it's about selectivity it's about what stuff you're willing to kind of take from the most you know uh you know in, in some ways it's almost like the anti it's the anti like purity demands that um, so many people on the reactionary right kind of insist that the left do. You know, it's the idea of like, oh, you don't have to be pure. You don't even have to like agree with like the fundamental core of my identity for me to kind of take value from you. As long as it kind of like reinforces another particular opinion that I have. Yeah. Right? Um, you know, and I think there's like some sort of, you know, there's a kind of like an endearing element to that. But that exists on the left too, just in exactly, ways yeah. that they don't yeah. like right like when they say that why are feminists you know not screaming about the hijab that could be one of those instances yeah. i think even on just kind of like you know other aspects of the left um you know there's degrees of selectivity as well like there are people who are willing to like overlook kind of quite horrible character traits of um particular like writers or speakers because they have a lot of clout in a certain mm. kind of community or they are very good at advancing a particular message um even if they're like their kind of other positions on like immigration or prisons and stuff like that are really reactionary right mm -hmm. um you know i think the idea of like the purity test is like been like bullshit like been really over egged bullshit anyway because their own purity tests just never come into question right like oh my gosh the splc tweeted something vaguely positive about Linda Sarsour one day, defund the damn SPLC forever. Right. You or know? Just like, yeah, or you have, like, companies who, like, tweet out vaguely lukewarm support for, like, trans people, and all of a sudden they're, they're like, in the same... Yeah the same bracket as like the communist part like the russian <laughs> communist party right it's kind of like all of this is this like over egged bullshit and it, we've all known it but it's kind of like we just constantly keep getting gaslit into thinking that um you know you have to kind of veer more and more towards the center which somehow becomes like the right in order to kind of have like a moderate quote-unquote moderate position well, yeah, just look at where the right is today. I mean, there's white nationalism in the White House. Uh, right. So... But also, like, all the white nationalist groups in Charlottesville who openly said we're white nationalists and, like, we don't want Jews to replace us. Yeah. Like, they're still around, right? They're still kind of, like, getting on these, like, very popular YouTube shows. They're yeah. still getting platforms. Like, nothing has changed. And, you know, when Trump wins again in 2020, which, like, I think will very likely be the case once, like, oh. Pete becomes oh. the candidate, um, you know, that's uh, just going to, like... American politics is so depressing to me. Insane. <laughs> I just, I'm trying so hard to ignore it on Twitter and just try to, I don't know, just focus yeah. on something else. Yeah a few more months before like it becomes engulfed in that
these kind of like meaningless signifiers like you know the left demands complete purity and complete um you know subjugation to their ideological beliefs but we don't actually know what those ideological beliefs are and in the meantime you know you have this like resurgent nationalist right who are just like you know getting a free pass and all this stuff and you know do they, and again like I the think standards so are very different that's for sure Right. And then there's the kind of like perpetuation of like the culture wars, which once, you know, this is really surprising. And I'm sure it's surprising to you, considering how long like we've both been online. But like seeing these kind of like once Internet culture wars and like stuff that would only be you'd only really see in like comment threads all of a sudden going to be debated in the House of Commons and everything. Um, You know, I don't see that changing anytime soon. So, (laughs) yeah, that is really fucked up because you thought that it was just in the horrible YouTube comments sections where this kind of yep. bullshit would stay, but now it's actually part of real politics, you know? I mean, Sargon was, what? <laughs> he joined UKIP, did he not? Like, well, he, was, well, he was running for office, and, yeah. he visited, and he's visited the House of Commons more than I ever have. So. Yeah. And <laughs> Ruben had our far-right candidate on his show, and it's just been, it's been disgusting. And it's just kind of like tech companies have just like not given a shit and like, yeah. So, you know, and I touch on that in the book as well, which is that like so much of this is being amplified because tech companies don't actually know what to do. And when they do know what to do, they just don't want to do anything. Yeah. Well, because clicks is what matters, right? Well, just like keeping people on the, keeping people on the platform is more important. Clicks and users and. Right. um, Yeah. So how has your book been received? Um, what kinds of feedback have you gotten about it? When it came out, it was really crazy. So I had like back-to-back interviews for like close to a month. And it was kind of wild because I was speaking mostly to like white journalists and like for kind of book festivals that were filled with like white secular, either Christians or atheists. And in one way, it was like almost having to explain like religious, like my own religious identity and upbringing to them. And that was kind of strange because like I've always sort of trying to, I've always tried to take this position of like keeping myself out of my work as much as possible. Mm. Uh, so for all of a sudden, and I think because like I had like a bit of a media profile um, and people kind of knew me as like an online culture writer and stuff, I think they were much more interested in me than they were necessarily in my subjects, which like all the people I wrote about, which was difficult sometimes. I tried to like bring it back to like, these are stories about like a select, you know, about like a handful of people who I think represent um, like some of the more interesting parts of like faith and everything. I used it as an opportunity to kind of talk about the media more than anything else about how they like cover religion and how like religious, like how like the this like the lack of good religion reporting in the UK and I guess like other parts of the world, but like in the UK, like particularly in this context. Um, meant that like we ended up whether whether it was like policymakers or whether it was journalists or whether it was like NGOs it was really kind of like we always kept asking ourselves the same question which is like what is a Muslim or like what do Muslims believe in and we were never coming up with an answer um right and to go back to um that point I was making earlier I don't think I finished it was when a lot of these new atheist types, you know, they insist that Islam and Muslim means one specific thing. Meanwhile, yeah. they insist that, you know, atheism means nothing, you know, like you can't have yeah. a, an ideology. 
However, online atheist culture does have a very specific ideology. You can see that there are clear dissenters that don't fit in and people that become popular because they toe the line. And it's just, it's the whole thing is so fascinating, right? What they insist um, about Islam mirrors yeah. them so much. Right. It comes with its own, you know, prophets, leaders, um, viewpoints, politics. And if you blaspheme, you're punished. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I think, I mean, even with like atheist stuff, I remember like one time I wrote a piece of advice about, and maybe we spoke about this. Um, I wrote a piece of advice about like how like some of like a lot of the online atheists like fucking suck because yeah. like they're not, because they're not just people who don't believe in anything. They're people whose whole identity is about like not believing in anything and getting really mad at people who do. Um, who, and that's like, also yeah. morphed uh, to much further, right? Like before it used to just be, okay, shitting on creationists and, uh, you know, making fun of Muslims yeah. and things like that. But that has come with a whole additional set of politics now, which means that you're likely going to be, uh, you know, anti-trans, anti-feminist, yeah. anti-left. It's delved into other spaces, and most of that is like anti-left spaces, which yeah. is like it starts off with like, oh, the left like appease Muslims and everything, yeah, and then it kind of develops to oh, the left appease these other groups too, and the left believe in like identity politics and everything. It's kind of like this constant like need to reaffirm and re-identify right. what it means to be a non-believer, and even in both contexts, it's sort of like you know I've seen a I've seen like these kind of like atheists who are, who kind of say oh I don't believe in God but like I appreciate Christian culture yes. and I appreciate <laughs> how like Christian culture has shaped the West and I want to preserve it which is why I invest a lot of money into like preserving like derelict churches and everything yeah. Yeah. um because I don't believe in God and it's kind of like I can kind of see where they come from but at the same time it's like this is a very confusing position to be in and but if you really think about it it makes sense because in order to kind of uphold any kind of identity that you have for the most part, it has to be in opposition to something, right? Or it has to be, like, in relation to something. You know, even when you're a Muslim, like, you know, you, you can be a very, very liberal Muslim, but your identity is still kind of in relation to you chose Islam over other religions or no religion at all. Um, and you chose that religion based on particular things, whether that's like your family or whether that's the language that you speak, or whether that's because you, like, believe in certain aspects of scripture. You chose to be a Shia over a Sunni for a very particular reason, or you choose to stay. Or you, bo you were born position. into it, like... Yeah, or you are born into it, and there's, like, a whole, there's a whole set of, like, complicated, like, reasons why you stay. I think this is, like, a lot of my story, which is that, like, I think parts of why... I can't detach myself from aspects of Islam is because I come from a very Muslim family. Mm. And, you know, I grew up like, you know, um, partaking in particular rituals and partaking in like particular actions. And lots of my childhood memories are kind of rooted in those. So I'll never be able to fully detach myself from that. So it's better to reconcile with it rather than to reject it and then constantly put myself in relation to that. I think there's like a section of my book where I talk about um, ex-Muslims and mm -hmm. it be the chapter begins with me hanging out with this guy who um, recently left Islam and like him and his mates his ex-Muslim mates they perform this ritual where like he eats like this kind of juicy pork sandwich um, <laughs> as like a signifier of like I'm leaving Islam and obviously like pork is a very I I've never eaten pork before so I this is only like my why I hear from other people um, but pork kind of expands in your stomach or something like that um, so if you've if you've never had it, like like fatty pork, like is supposed to kind of expand because you know there's a lot of kind of um, absorbing 
Mm. You know, again, I don't know if that's bullshit or not. This is just something that, like, I don't know. <laughs> but, but, like, this is a type of meat that he's never had before. So, obviously, after he has a few bites, like, he gets very sick, right? Um, so, Ooh, Allah was right. <laughs> so, like, I'm, I'm doing this interview with him at the back of this pub in, like, central London. Um, while he's throwing up, because this is the only time oh. I can do his interview with him, which is like a lovely experience to have. Um, but whenever I'm speaking to him, I'm thinking to myself that like, you've never once actually told me that you're happy doing this. Like, you've told me a lot about your family and you've told me a lot about how you think religion is oppressive. And you've told me a lot about like how, you know, um, you know, uh, you're kind of secretly doing this stuff. But you've never like once kind of told me why this decision is good for you. Um, and it just made me think about how like his atheism in part was actually like a kind of decision to sort of oppose particular things that his family believed in and things that he grew up in and a reaction to like quite a bad childhood mm -hmm. from what I gathered. And it was interesting just to kind of see how this kind of atheist, like atheism as kind of an ideological structure. There are lots of people who like want to simplify it, but this is not a simple position. This is not like a simple kind of like way to live your life. Um, and if we kind of recognize that, if we can kind of recognize that compl complexity for like Abrahamic faiths, like we should kind of probably afford that for in the case of not believing as well, if that makes sense. Oh, yeah. There's so much that can, uh, you know, that can color or shape your atheism, right? It isn't as simple as, sim as just, oh, I don't believe in the superstitious <laughs> side of this stuff. And that's it. Life is simple now. No, I mean, I <laughs> I have been through quite a ride with my atheism as well. You know, first recognizing that I am not alone in not mm -hmm. believing in Islam. It was quite liberating, quite lovely to see that there's a community and a term for ex-Muslims. And then you feel like euphoric almost. like, And then you get sucked into the anger. And then... Um, that's where I went through my new atheist phase. And then yeah. you kind of come to your senses and think, what the fuck? <laughs> what is all yeah. this other shit that's coming with it? You know, right. eugenics. What is Dawkins tweeting about today? <laughs> As we record, he just tweeted yeah. about how eugenics, um, yeah. well, you know, it there's, may there's, be bad, but it works or some well, bullshit do you, do you like know how, that. Do you know how that story started? The Dawkins one? Yeah, well, like how why he tweeted what he tweeted because no, this is no, like British drama again. So um, we have like a new conservative government and like this, the kind of big special advisor to the prime minister is a guy called Dominic Cummings, and he is like a um, he's like he kind of is one of those guys that watched Joker and thought that it was a documentary. Um, like his view of the world is just one which is like extremely technocratic. It's one where like he thinks that he's like super smart and kind of operates from like four different planes to everyone else. He's someone who would like say something like we live in a society and not mean it ironically. So he put out a job like, so he put out a job ad for his kind of special unit of advisors. Um, and he was looking for quote, like people who were like weirdos and misfits. So this was like a funny thing that everyone made fun of because Dominic Cummings is a weird guy. But his first hire was a guy called Andrew Sabisky, who, from what I've seen, is like a um, he calls himself like a super forecaster, someone who's like able to see things like five. You know, he's he's the guy who's been able to play like 15 dimensional chess. Right. He calls um, himself that he calls himself a super forecaster, even though I'm not actually sure what he's forecasted. <laughs> um, 
he has like a very bizarre religious like podcast he's like a high anglican you know but one of the things that he had said to like a industry newspaper called schools week was that like you know eugenics is just like i think his position was like we should rethink what we mean by eugenics because uh, and like when you start a sentence like that off like uh, in my opinion it's better not to finish it but he decided to finish it anyway his thing was you know his thing was something along the lines of eugenics just means like putting kind of young people including like children in uh physical environments where they can perform the best so if that means that like some groups have naturally have like less iq than others then we should put them in environments where like their oh. like lesser iq can kind of be enhanced the best of their best of like their capability compared to people who don't have high iqs and then as it kind of went on and on like we just found that oh this guy just like tweets some really bizarre and weird shit out about how like you know we should give kids like modafinil um and that like you know um it's worth like a few kids dying if like we can kind of create like super brains and stuff like that there's like this really bizarre forum shit right like stuff you would read in like yeah i i i yeah i don't even know what to say like i don't have any grasp on that story but it sounds insane but because this guy like has like loose affiliations with a bunch of like british right-wing think tanks and like um trad organizations obviously because of the Anglicanism and stuff, you have a lot of people who are now like defending him and basically saying, oh, you're taking his words out of context. Of course, and of yes, course. Yes, they are. One of these guys were like, okay, well, what does he mean by eugenics, right? Because if it's been taken out of context, then surely like a correction should be issued. So and Dawkins his- didn't say, decide to say anything about how that was a fucked up thing to say. Instead, he said, oh, you well, know, yeah. it works. It may be a bad thing. You may <laughs> not like it, but you know, it works. it works right but you can apply that to like oh you know the you know the the kind of like work camp might you might be like morally objective objectionable to the work camp but you can't say it doesn't work and he doesn't define what say, he means yeah. by works or anything like right. it's scary you shit say, like yeah you can't say it's not efficient and it's kind of just like i don't know who you think that like i don't i don't know who you think is like on your side here like, even kind of the most bird-brained right-wing pundits in this country are not defending this guy. Like, I don't understand why you think you have to. Yeah, I don't know. This is another uh, perfect example of things that you would hope would be in some gross online forum, as you said, and just stay there. Yeah. Uh, but now this whole explosion of race, IQ, phrenology, and... Yeah. Quillette, I mean, and... Oh, just... It's so horrifying and terrifying. Yeah. And I mean, like one of my friends has put it like very bluntly, which is like, this is just the case of like for like guys who spend so much time on the internet, that their brain is like basically glue hiring other people who also spend like an unreal amount of time on the internet. And but also when you don't have that much at stake, you yes. clearly are able to just deal in these abstract ideas. Yeah, you can just kind of say these things. Like, oh, it's just like a thought experiment. It's not a concern. Yeah. It's like, but okay, but you're also like an advisor to the prime, like the prime minister of the United Kingdom, right? Like, what the yes. fuck? Um, but when you tell them these things, they just kind of just say, you know, they kind of like just accuse you of doing cancel culture and stuff. And it's just like, I don't know. At some point, you kind of think to yourself, is it even worth getting into like these types of stupid? Cancel um, culture has gone too far. I mean, they're saying eugenics yeah. is bad now. Eugenics for experiments. Oh, fucking um, SJWs. They won't even let you, like, 
discuss eugenics positively in peace. They won't even let let you fantasize about a genocide. Oh man. Which which is what George Orwell warned about in 1984, which was published in 1984. (laughs) And then we had Dennis Prager the other day, um, (laughs) just (laughs) lamenting the fact that you can no longer say the N word, like just openly complaining. Like, it's bizarre shit, but it's also, like, I think they know it's bizarre shit, but they also know that it does wonders to kind of, like, you only need a small amount of people to kind of, like, take that seriously to move that Overton window, right? Of course. And Richard Spencer liked Dawkins' tweet. I'm not surprised. I'm genuinely not surprised by it. And I and I think that, like, even if Daw- if someone, like, brought that up to Dawkins, he wouldn't think that that was, like... A bad thing he would just be like you know he would just again kind of say that like the left are trying to cancel them and stuff um like it's this constant need for victimization and i think i think about this a lot because i'm sort of like on the one hand we want to call out these people for like their shitty and very dangerous ideas especially when they have like pos- positions of power awarded to them on the other hand it almost works in their favor because then they can kind of just keep like, portraying themselves as victims right and the irony is that they complain about others being snowflakes others being victims or you know wanting to portray themselves as victims all the, like right. so much of this is just projection 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 right it goes back to it goes back to selectivity it goes back to projection it goes back to this idea that like in order to kind of have a secure identity for yourself you always need to be in opposition to something right it, like and your identity like and i think in many ways i feel like that's why lots of uh, these kind of right-wing guys, especially the ones who have just found Christianity, find Islam to be very intimidating because for them it's sort of like, oh, these are people who are like very secure in their religious, religious identity. They are so secure that even if you threaten them with like death and imprisonment, they'll kind of consider themselves to be martyrs and stuff, right? Mm. Uh, in the meantime, we've got this identity which is very lukewarm, which is based on other people like doing things we don't like. And it's based on kind of like an imagined idea of what we want the world to be but we're not even we're not even quite sure if we want that, right? Um, you know, but I, these I identities always, based on uh, generating outrage certainly get a lot I, of I they can drum about, up like, a lot of support and get a lot of attention. I always think about like the stuff about like Lauren Southern, who like her whole shtick before she decided to quit was um, like you know trad being like the trad uh, being like a trad millennial or like someone who's like you know don't believe you know, I don't believe in like sex before marriage I don't you know dating should be like this kind of like very Christianized thing and then funnily enough like it was Milo Yiannopoulos <laughs> who like leaked a bunch of stuff which was basically saying but oh yeah like they were all like doing like cocaine and they were all like sleeping with each other and like and wasn't she dra- dating like a non-white guy as well which was really I mean, pro- controversial. Yeah. I mean, probably. I'm not surprised. But I know that, like, when the Milo leaks came out, there were lots of people who were, like, they used to kind of, like, thirst for Lauren Southern because they were like, damn, here's, like, this, like, trad white girl who looks, like, who's, like, isn't, like, unattractive and, like, you know, says all the things that we want to hear and says that, like, men are the real victims. All of a sudden to be like, oh, damn, this girl was, like, a Stacy. This girl was, like, you know, this girl would have never gone out with us because she would just wanted to go out with chads instead. Um, <laughs> so even in these types of identities that they want to project and they want to project on the entire West and that they, they like, took over, like, the whole, like, Western Western political systems in order to do, they're still really insecure about that, right? They're still really insecure about how strong that actually is. So the only thing that they can turn to is, like, continual victimization 
among this like phantom left and their uh, like alliance with like right-wing muslims and transgender people yeah um meanwhile um they advocate for alliances with right-wing whoever's as long as they're not yeah. muslims <laughs> right <laughs> right right as long, yeah as long as like as long as you pass our purity tests yeah. you shouldn't worry about any other purity tests it doesn't matter if they're nazis right right <laughs> um this is a probably a good time to talk about this study that you mentioned in your book i think it was a hope not hate study where they found 117 percent increase in followers of anti-muslim twitter accounts over a period of nine months and um yeah that really hit me because i've seen you know ex-muslim accounts that i you know that i used to think weren't such bad people that i was friendly with at some point then they became these horrific like far right panderers and they got worse and worse right before my eyes and i was like what the fuck is happening but but then you see their growth too like they went from like an account of like i don't know six to eight thousand twitter followers to like eighty ninety thousand twitter followers doing these massive events being praised by sam harris constantly sam calling you his hero yeah um while you say shit like, you know, Islam is worse than Nazism and... Um... Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know. I think there's a lot of these, again, it kind of like speaks to this thing about like everyone wants belonging, right? And I don't know whether we spoke about this before, whether I spoke about this with someone else, but it was like, often these people who are like very ardent ex-Muslims um, and people who are like very kind of well-known on the scene are people who were like very kind of ardent, they were very ardent Muslims and they were people who were like yes. kind of like a whole community. They were used to um, like a whole network of people kind of reinforcing their ideas or like telling them that they were right or that they were secure in their identity. And I remember this because I went to religious school and like what the experience of going to like the madrasa was always about reaffirmation, right? The idea that like if you're told something enough times and it becomes true, so you don't even need to question it. Mm. And these are people who have like who were in the system for a lot longer. So there's like one ex-Muslim that I'm thinking about who like I won't name, but she was a presenter on the Islam channel for a long time. Um the Islam channel being like the most kind of prominent Sunni Muslim TV channel. Uh wow, in- I don't know who you're talking about. um and now she's like goes to like lots of different ex-muslim conferences and you know uh is like one of the kind of more notable kind of faces on the ex-muslim scene and kind of i wouldn't necessarily have said as allied with kind of dodgy people but has definitely kind of like taken their points and opinions seriously to the point like of retweeting them or like making whole videos about them etc and i see like similar patterns in a way of like even if you move from one place to another that kind of sense of affirmation and that sense of needing to belong and that need, that sense of like knowing that the decision that you made to like abandon this identity that had formed most of your youth was the correct one to make. That requires like a network of people to keep reinforcing those things. And one of the like the theories of my book is that like the internet has kind of become less of a place of discussion, more of a place of affirmation. It's more of the idea that you can find people who are like you and who will kind of like believe the same stuff as you and will amplify the same stuff as you. And as a result, you end up in this network where like it's really hard to kind of think that you're wrong or like really reconsider what, how you live your life until like something really goes wrong or like something like something that has like significant consequence happens 
um, for the most part, you're willing to kind of like overlook some of the darker elements of your community if it means that. But sometimes you are the darker elements. You know what I'm yeah, saying? And, and, until eventually you become it, yeah. right? Or until eventually you kind of acclimatize to it. But I think it still comes from this place of like this feeling of needing to belong somewhere, this feeling of needing to have a community. Um, because with Islam in particular, where it's so community orientated and so community driven, the idea of like going your own way is a really daunting thing to think about, right? Right. I think um, that's one thing that uh, I didn't have in my days as a practicing Muslim. Like my parents were never very religious and we yeah. never like, of course, you know, they socialize with the Pakistani community, which is mostly Muslim. But there was never any real strict emphasis on Islam or prayer. And they're very uh, liberal and progressive uh, yeah. in a Muslim context. And they still are. Yeah. And so I guess it just wasn't very strong in me yeah you know I, I mean yeah i mean in my in my kind of like experience with like the british context like that's a very rare thing to find like for the most part the ex-muslims in britain like come from extremely practicing families yeah where, like yeah but you see this is used of, yeah. this is used to attack me as well by these same people who used to admire me when i was like very um focused on criticizing the muslim right. right and focused on uh criticizing islam and now it's become you know maybe she's not even a real ex-muslim because she wasn't <laughs> even a real muslim because her parents aren't strict and it's like what like <laughs> one day i'm your perfect ex-muslim and it doesn't yeah. matter how strict or unstrict my parents were. Now, all of a sudden, A, I wasn't oppressed enough in Saudi Arabia. That's why I'm not right-wing enough. B, I'm not even really an ex-Muslim because my parents weren't, like, forcing me into hijab. That's really interesting just in the context of uh, thinking about how that works in, like, Muslim spaces where, on the one hand, like, they'll kind of have a mistrust of you if you grew up in a liberal place or if you kind of take liberal positions on things. But they'll really like you if, like, you kind of take a stance that, like, defends so-called normative conservative Muslims. Um, right, exactly. So I've kind right. of felt that from both ends my whole life, you know? Like, yeah. I never really <laughs> fit into the Muslim community because we were always like, oh, that family, they're so progressive, they're so liberal. Yeah. Um, even though I guess my parents did try poor things. I mean, they did <laughs> put us in Quran classes. So now I come into this atheist scene or the ex-Muslim scene even, and I'm kind of feeling the same thing, right? Like, too left, not, uh, you know, anti-Muslim enough, not yeah. authentic enough, you know? Right. There's like a new, yeah, there's like new kind of purity tests and there's new, um, there's new kind of hurdles to face in order to kind of like reaffirm your your uh your authenticity yeah. to a group that and is like largely homogenous flip almost like overnight whereas you know they could use my growing up in saudi arabia being a woman who has worn a burqa you know so much to their advantage when needed and when it fits the narrative it's like oh yes i know amazing you know uh poor oppressed woman was uh, you know, ha having to deal with morality police in Saudi Arabia. Now, all of a sudden, because I'm not focused on the things they want me to focus on, it flips. It just yeah. completely flips. I don't know, not oppressed enough, not um, ex-Muslim. It's just, I don't know. It's bizarre to see both ends of that. Like, mm. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I didn't, like, that's kind of like a you very, that's an extremely unique uniquely tough position to be in, right?
Yeah. Um, but it's also one that must be very familiar to you because, you know, when you kind of think that you're kind of going away from, we were like leaving kind of like the demands of orthodoxy and um, like the kind of place where like adherence to rituals signifies your like loyalty. You're now in a new place where it's like, oh, I've got to like learn all these new like signifiers and like have to like learn all these new types of like languages and stuff mm. in order to kind of not be questioned about my authenticity on a public stage as well, right? Like the fact that this is like a very social media driven environment right now is also one where it's like you also have to perform in a particular way online in the same way that like Yeah, yeah, exactly. Lots of the religious people that I spoke to felt that like, you know, um one of the like the fun most fun anecdotes that I unfortunately didn't make the book but I tell people is that Whenever I spoke to like very religious young people, I would meet up with them and I'd be very surprised about how they looked because I would think, that, oh, when I got in contact with you online, like your Twitter feed was filled with like, you know, alhamdulillah, mashallah, all this stuff. Like you were kind of retweeting mm. duas and like all these kind of like Islamic things. I was expecting you to have like a beard and like, you know, yeah. uh, like uh, kameez and everything. And instead you've got, you know, you're wearing like, you know, jeans and a tight t-shirt and like stuff like that. And like, you look more like a, you know, um, just like a general, like a guy in his twenties or something like that, than this really devout Muslim. And what they'll say is that, you know, often, um, they'll often say that my social media feed is, uh, presents a more religious version of me because it's something that I aspire to do. And I only want to put out religious messages and stuff like that. So like, even though, in is my that because life, they think the community is watching or, I think partly, I think it's also because they want to kind of like, for them, like being performative in that way is also a way of affirming what they would like to be. So it's almost like they're creating an aspirational version of themselves hmm. um, on the internet. How very really Jordan matter. Peterson. Yeah. And <laughs> right. Um, but what was interesting was that like, this was kind of an act of like being performative in order to kind of maybe convince people of certain things or to uh like not have people question how religious they are and everything and i think with like ex-muslim spaces but other space like even kind of like other idw spaces um it's the idea that you have to perform online and perform these rituals yep. by like tweeting the right type of content and engaging with the right type of people you know i i do this as a journalist all the time like when i'm kind of like trying to understand a community but i don't understand it's always about like well who are the gatekeepers and like what type of stuff are they posting and like what type of things are they reading i should go read that what type why did okay. they go read this stuff like so you're really looking at like how this structure community works so you kind of figure out your way in um to figure out what way can they accept you um now obviously in the context of being a journalist you have to kind of say well i'm here because i intend to write about you or i'm intending to like do a radio piece about you or something but when you're like someone who's just looking for a community to belong to like you're good you can pick up things really fast right you can pick up like what type of stuff do they like what types of things are they saying i don't even have to understand and like in left-wing spaces this happens too right um you know so many people like who kind of retweet stuff about like neoliberalism and they have no idea mm. what it is or like stuff to do with like marx's capital and they have no idea like mm. they've never even read like even kind of a primer to marx or anything but at the same time they don't need to they don't need because like it's not about marx it's not about the text it's not about the like underpinnings or the foundation mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that people believe it's just about doing the performances which is a very religious thing right um, I just found it funny how that like could transplant into like other secular spaces that 
organize themselves in a way that was almost akin to a religion right like how you were saying that they have these rituals of eating pork and things like that like in some yep. way i can understand it being cathartic right if you've experienced uh you know extreme oppression under religion i um uh, out of anger would do things like that as a teenager as well right not pork but things that i know that's gonna piss like my grandparents off or my parents yeah. off and you know wearing dog collars and <laughs> stuff like that and it, it fascinates me, the pork thing, because of how many Muslims I know that are perfectly fine drinking alcohol, but they won't touch, they won't right. touch bacon yeah. <laughs> or they won't, you know, and myself, you know, who was never really attached to religion, it's just something mm. instilled in my mind that I just never, ever had the desire to eat pork. And I'd always say, no, no, I don't eat pepperoni or whatever, you know, at a social gathering. And then one day I was like, Whatever, I'll just try it, you know. It wasn't really the kind of angry, this is my breaking free moment. But even me, like I was affected by this pork thing, this this line, but not the alcohol yeah. line, you know. It's funny how that works. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, but uh, you were talking about um, how you're doing back-to-back -back interviews with your book. On a bigger scale, it was like one of the things I was disappointed about was that even though it got like a lot of press and that's all down to the fact that Hearst have a very good media team, uh, Hearst being my publishers, um, I didn't really get a lot of kind of space to speak about it with Muslims themselves. Hmm. Um, I did like a couple of like talks in masjids, but that, that was it. Like for the most part. Really? The, How did that go? I think it was really rewarding. I mean, the, the masjids that I spoke to were kind of more liberal facing. Uh -huh. So, um, I think for them, it was like they were very, they were fine with me talking about like sexuality inside the masjid. They were very happy about me. They were very happy to let me talk about like drugs and violence and all that stuff. I think like there were more masjids who were very, like who may have been hesitant to doing that, which was a shame because I think like I tried really hard to like give voices and platforms to young practicing conservative Muslims. Yeah that have largely been ignored by projects like this. Yeah, I think it's an important piece of the puzzle, though, right? So it's right. good that you did, because if you want to yeah. kind of get a whole picture, then you need to hear from them, too. Right. And I think it's also like, I think for a lot of these kind of like more conservative leaning masters, they sort of think that they've got it sorted in the way that like, well, we have lots of young people who come and like, we kind of preach a message that is like, much truer to the scriptures than like any sort of like liberal platform so we don't have to worry about these things and the argument that i was trying to advance was like you may think that you've got it sorted but like the young people in your congregation like they go home right mm -hmm. and they spend a lot of time on their phones and they spend a lot of time yeah. on their computers and everything and we should be interested in like what they do because the internet and phones and stuff are not like an abstract thing right they kind of like inform the way that we live our lives the way yeah. that we see ourselves the way that we converse with each other these are young men who are like looking to get married so like the internet is a way of looking at what kind of preferences do they have what kind of marriage are they looking for um are they reading jordan peterson and kind of thinking <laughs> that they, you know and getting advice about women from him which for some people that is happening right i felt that there was like a lack of curiosity in those communities about like what technology was doing and then whenever something would go wrong or like whenever they would ask themselves well, why aren't kind of young people coming to our uh, jummas and everything they're not really asking themselves these questions so i was trying to do that in the hope of sparking a conversation and i don't know i mean maybe in some places both that conversation is happening and like they're having i think there were a couple of like mustards who do book clubs and like my book was chosen for a couple of those book clubs which was nice 
Masjid is a mosque for anyone that is unfamiliar with the term. I I just kind of wish I did more of those. I had more of those opportunities to speak to Muslims when the book was coming out. I think it was like it was good to talk to like non-secular white people who were just interested in what was going on. I think that was like an important thing to do. And I really appreciate that they were very like curious about everything that I had written. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also like I wrote it for my own community, right? Like I wrote it for Muslims because mm-hmm. like I came into this project as a Muslim and I left the project as a Muslim. So did you get any yeah. negative feedback from conservative Muslims, like saying that your book was, I don't know, outrageous and Okay, so there, there were three things. There was one there's one person who gave my book two stars on Goodreads. <laughs> and I don't know why I got two stars, because everyone else has been like three, four, or five. And I really just wondered why why what 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 gave it two stars. So that was one negative review, I guess. There what did they say? Kind of, Nothing. It was just two stars. I'm still like wondering to this day why that happened. Um, there was a second one. There were a couple on Twitter that were kind of like they hadn't read the book, but they were kind of bemused by the the premise of like this is a book about Muslim Twitter and like the whole idea that oh you're writing about Muslim Twitter to white people and a white audience and like basically the whole kind of leveraging that this is Orientalism in some way oh, or another. This they is like another one of those. Regardless of what you do. Yeah. This is another one of those like, you know, educated Muslims who like works in white media and is trying to explain brown people to white people. Um, which like, I don't know, I didn't really engage with that just because I didn't necessarily think that it was like a fair reading of it, but I could see where that came from. Right. But again, it wasn't my intention to like. But there's also white- nothing wrong with wanting a wider audience to yeah. you know sort of understand where you're coming from and it's actually very useful i think it was also an example of where just like the whole identity politics thing if like if it is kind of that if that's the right term to use this is really limiting because it's kind of like okay well are you just like making the case that no one should read books that we write or are you making the alternative case that like brown people should read more books which like yes they should they absolutely like i wish more people in my community read more books mm-hmm. um i wish books were like m- much more important like I wish books were like a much more important thing that I had when I was growing up that weren't like religious texts. Mm-hmm. But like in the absence of those things, it's like, you know, and I said to my publishers, like I want to kind of, you know, I want these books to go out to like mosques if like we know them because I think that would be important. And I'd, and I'd love to kind of have conversations with them and like advance my research in that. So it wasn't that we didn't try to do that, right? It wasn't mm-hmm. that like, reaching out to Muslim Muslim organizations wasn't a priority. Yeah. Um, it was more one of those things like I was willing to do as much press as like, or as much kind of as many podcasts or many like, you know, TV things as like I could. And it just so happened that those things tended to come from like white secular people who were interested in the project that I was doing. Yeah. My main worries were more along the lines of have I kind of like sold parts of my community down the river? Have I like orientalized them? Have I kind of, treated them as like specimen and not giving them voices and like I don't think and none of that criticism was ever ever came out so I'm pretty thankful that that mm-hmm. didn't happen that's that's good um one thing I found interesting about you um really interesting about you going on this religious uh discord server was um <laughs> the rules <laughs> that they had um around genders even like online So I'm just going to quote you. um, The Slaves of Allah group, which has 700 members, describes itself 
as a server whose members are only servants to Allah. The server is administered according to traditional Islamic rules. For the admins, that means that they, that the Muslims are given priority over non-Muslims when it comes to leading discussions, that men are given a higher ranking in chat groups than women, meaning men's posts are shown above women's, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that private messaging between male and female members on the group is strictly forbidden. The yeah. long list of rules include support of any obvious terrorist organization will result in a ban, which is good. Um, the server shall not be used as a platform to commit sins, maintain modesty at all times, especially with the opposite gender. There may not be giggling, unnecessary talk, usage of emojis, uh, comma, shamelessness in a mixed company. I mean, that to me is just fascinating. It's a lot, right? Um, but again, it's like another example of how, like, how do you take a secular technology and apply like religious rules to it? Yes. Uh, and see, I see so much of myself in, in what you do. Like I also did a panel on, um, the intersection of religion and tech. And this is, you know, coming from that perspective, this would have been such a great addition too. like the use of emojis. Like I never yeah. even would think in a million years that emojis <laughs> would be forbidden by right and now people. you know and now it's kind of like it will kind of evolve to like bitmojis and stuff like that right um one of the questions that i was thinking about while i was writing about was what happens in like virtual reality situations like what if you're a dude in virtual reality who's like a woman like do you have to cover up and like you know <laughs> what what's, what's the kind of like stuff around i mean these are kind of like oh bizarre questions yeah, if you ever want to yeah. come on and have that conversation, <laughs> if you have more things to say, right. I would happily host that conversation. These are kind of questions that I think are a little bit ahead of its time at the moment, but like definitely something that is not entirely inconceivable. You know, there are even kind of like Facebook groups which are like for Muslim men only, or like, you know, you have like the Muslim men online who kind of go around telling women to like change their, you know, Twitter ABI because they shouldn't be like showing their hair or like, you know, that you know, they, you know, that they might be misleading brothers and stuff like that. Um, you know, we call, we, they call them like, you know, the, the kind of like Sharia, the online Sharia police and stuff. Mm. Um, you know, but there are like a sizable number of men who do that, right? Because they want to kind of make their online experience as halal as possible. Sometimes <laughs> like they want to make their online experience more halal than their offline experience because they have more control <laughs> over their online experience. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, so there's a lot of interesting questions around there in terms of like how we tailor the worlds that we create, and I think that's an interesting question because so like it comes up. Yeah, do they police something like no giggling, no unnecessary talk? How? I don't know the specifics, but like I is think giggling had, ha typing ha 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 ha? Maybe I think maybe it's also just like if they think that like an account is a woman, um, she can't then, say lol. I don't, I mean, I don't know. I mean, I asked these questions. I didn't really get answers back yeah. because like, the admin that I spoke to wasn't like the chief admin. So like, uh, again, I, but I think a lot of this is just like a lot of like overzealous admin and encouraging of like members to snitch on each other. Um, so if someone's like, oh, I think this account must be a woman. <laughs> then you snitch to the admin and then the admin will like um, see if that's a thing. I think, yeah, like, I don't know 
in a lot of these cases, like it's one of those things where it's like a lot of this is more theoretical. Like they would yeah. like a situation like this, but it's hard to see how they would actually implement these rules in practice unless someone was like really significantly breaching them. Okay, so what is like the top top most haram emoji? Do you think? Um, probably uh the uh, eggplant one. That's what I was thinking too. <laughs> eggplant one or the peach one or the water droplets. Oh yeah, but what if you're just uh, you know an auntie exchanging a recipe for like an eggplant curry? Uh, well, you better find another vegetable for that. So <laughs> uh, that's the only thing I can figure. That's the only thing I can um I can think of. Oh man, I I I just can't get over that the emoji <laughs> slash Islam connection. I love it. It's. Yeah. Yeah, it's wild, right? It's wild. And this and this brings me to your um articles. Talk to me about uh dropping acid for Allah. Oh my god. Okay. So I'll I'm gonna send backstory. that one to my parents. They're gonna love it. Yeah. Not really. My dad I'll will absolutely yeah. be mad at you. I'll tell you the backstory of it because it was a piece that I had actually done in February and I thought that it was a little bit kind of pushing it a bit too much. Like I thought it was just like a little bit quirky for the sake of it. So I didn't kind of like publish or anything. And then when it came out, I was basically like running out of ideas and I have like a quota at Mel Magazine. I have to like <laughs> post three things a week. So I was like, okay, I've got this thing that's been sitting in my drafts for a long time. And I don't know whether like there's something to it, but maybe we can use it. And I told this story to our writer's room and they were all just like really amazed by it. Um, and I was like, I didn't really think it's that amazing. Also because I feel like it's such a ripoff of like Michael Muhammad Knight. Who's like whole stick is like being the Muslim guy who does drugs. Mm. Um, so this was supposed to be like just um, I uh, it was an idea that I had for the book and it didn't come into fruition because I didn't think it had like enough internet based stuff to kind of justify it being there. But one of the guys who runs the kind of group who I called the Cosmonauts. Um, he, he like messaged me on WhatsApp every so often being like, Hey, we're doing one of these things. Would you be interested? And one time I was just like, yeah, let's, let's just see what it's like. And the idea initially was like, I was just going to go watch a bunch of people trip. And then over time I just thought to myself, wouldn't it just like, maybe I can do enough so that like, I won't have a really bad high. And as someone who doesn't really do drugs that often, um, and definitely not kind of like hard, kind of like anything other than like smoking weed every so often mm -hmm. so I took like a very small amount which I knew wouldn't like do too much to my body uh and I just wrote about like stuff that I remembered and I think that was it it was kind of I wanted to see like what a kind of religious a genuine religious experience would be like when your senses were heightened and by extension I wanted to see this piece about how much of like prayer is about sensory um sense uh what you call it like sensory feeling because mm -hmm. i've i've written stuff in the past about how like one of my kind of other interests is like lo-fi music um and like binaural music and stuff like that so the kind of like music that makes you feel certain ways so sometimes it makes mm -hmm. you feel nostalgic sometimes it can make you feel like you're nostalgic for like an imagined world sometimes like it's supposed to kind of like influence your kind of biological movements mm. um so I wanted to see, like, it was sort of in that vein. I wanted to see how much of prayer it was, like, about, like, body impulses rather than, like, mental focus. Um, and, yeah, and I think it just came across like that. I don't, like, the trip didn't really last that long. I think I definitely over-egged some elements of it. 
uh, to try and make it like sound a little bit more exciting. I think that there was a lot of the time when I was there, which it just like felt very dull. Mm. Um, and yeah, but I mean, it was fine. I think that like, it wasn't something that I'd necessarily want to do every day. And it didn't make me like connect with God and like connect with like faith in any more of a significant way than like I came in. I can see uh, how it would though. I'm sure for some people, because for some people, it's kind of like they want to have that spiritual connection. Mm -hmm. They want to have that spiritual feeling. And for them, like prayer is very much about like the, you know, the kind of unison of mind and body and stuff. Um, again, it's another example of just how people kind of interact with faith in different ways. Right. Mm -hmm. And so did your family read that piece? Like, I'd be curious to hear like your parents' uh, reactions. Yeah, they did. They weren't particularly happy about it. <laughs> but, uh, I think also, like, I've done so many stupid things just, like, for the sake of doing journalism, and I just haven't told them about it until it comes out. But it was just, like, one of those things where it's just like, well, it's probably better that you didn't tell us about this, and we're happy that at least you took the bus and didn't drive back home. Uh, <laughs> um, I also think that, like, they know that, like, I know there's been so many opportunities for me to kind of, like, break the rules and stuff in terms of, like, my Islam, and they've never been, like, super enforcing about that. But I That's haven't cool. really broken. I haven't really broken much of them, right? Like I still like don't drink alcohol. I don't eat pork. I don't really eat meat that isn't halal. Um, you know. See, and that's so interesting as well. Depending on how you interpret things, you can totally stay within the lines. By yeah. I, I don't know with these what I would see as loopholes. Yeah, and um, also like being a, being a male like really helps with that, right? Because I, I I don't have to perform as much as like a woman. Yeah. To kind of like go through those loopholes, like I just have to be like the so called good boy who like doesn't do the outward kind of like defiance of Islam. Um, so you, you know, can drop acid for Allah and stay within the lines because there's no specific mention of acid, whereas right. pork and, and, and is a big to, no no. You know, that's so weird. But, Whenever you go to masjid, like, they're not going to talk about, like, specific drugs. They're not going to talk about, like, specific kind of, like, you shouldn't do, like, ecstasy or you shouldn't yeah. do all these things. They kind of just say drugs, right? Yeah. And that's partly because they don't really know how to talk about drug culture. And they also know that the congregation that they're speaking to doesn't really know how to talk about drug culture either. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's where, like, if you're, like, a smart idiot or, like, someone who just wants to... Uh, um, what's the right word for it? Someone who wants to kind of like play around with loopholes for a bit. Like you can totally do that, right? Yeah. You can totally just use the argument that Michael Muhammad Knight makes, which is that, well, coffee is kind of a drug because it like influences and stimulates your brain. Yeah. And there's like a long history of like Islamic um, scholars and poets who have drunk wine and talk about drinking right, wine. Right, right. I've heard that one a lot, actually. It's and... like a long story of that. So like, you know, if there's all these examples then me doing that isn't really defying the faith in any way that's like meaningful. You just don't want me to do it because of like some cultural boundaries. And those cultural boundaries are informed by your feelings and not by facts. And that's where like the Ben Shapiro, like the Muslim <laughs> Ben Shapiro comes in. Like there are definite ways like to get around the loopholes, but I'm not going to pretend that like it's not easier for me because of my gender. Right. Right. Yeah. It's, it's interesting that people <laughs> like that you would, try to loophole religion but i mean that's a, such a long discussion anyways right because yeah. god is all seeing but then you're finding these little loopholes and you kind of yeah. know the basic premise of not drinking alcohol is about feeling right. intoxication but then but this this again goes back to the point that we were talking about at the very beginning of the show which was that again so much of religion is about selectivity regardless yeah. of like where 
stand on particular things. It's very difficult to kind of like adhere to an ideology, adhere to any form of ideology or anti-ideology um, and kind of like ignore the human component. Exactly. Because, and I've been thinking about this, I was thinking about this when I was just as I was coming back to my flat, which was that so much about religion is conflict. So I remember this story that in Madrasa, where like a friend of mine, we were told about heaven and you probably heard these stories too, right? About like how in heaven, everything will be done for you and how yeah. there'll be no struggles in heaven and like everything will be perfect and stuff. And my friend just like says like, well, this sounds really boring, right? Yeah. And it sounded really like the good the place. And he, and he got into, I, I've, I should really watch the good place. Oh. I feel like, because um, that relates to the last episode quite a bit. Sorry if okay. I spoiled it for anyone, but oh, no, well, now, now I have to binge. Now I have to binge it all. Um, yeah, look, it's I, been a while since that was out, so don't blame me. Yeah. I won't. I won't. But it was like I was thinking about this, so I was sort of like, yeah, heaven sounds like a really boring place, and that's because so much of religion is about conflict, and it's about kind of like confronting the very worst impulses of yourself, and it's about failure, and. Because, again, so many religious stories are about redemption, right? So, like, redemption comes via failure. So we have to keep failing and we have to kind of keep, like, breaking the rules and we have to keep giving in to our vices and stuff mm-hmm. because I feel like that's really the only way to have, like, a meaningful relationship with that kind of faith. Mm. Um, which, again, makes it a really complicated thing because it disrupts this narrative of, like, you know, good Muslim, bad Muslim, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I really appreciate you like saying that honestly, you know, because it feels a little gaslighty to me when religious people in my life act like being perfect and linear and, you know, is possible at all. And they're not breaking any rules when they clearly are, you know, and it is about selection. And right. So if we but started also, that conversation with this honesty, it would be so much more productive. But that's also a part of being like a religious, like having a secure religious identity to a degree means being insecure about your own kind of human impulses, yeah. right? Because if you were like this perfect kind of super practicing person, like and you had none of these conflicts, like religion would fundamentally be meaningless to you. Um it, it wouldn't have like, you know, there wouldn't be any kind of real place for it. So it's a confusing paradox, but I think it's one that kind of lends itself to theology. Like theology is full of confusing paradoxes. Mm-hmm. And I think the point I was trying to talk about, and especially when I focused on identity in my book, it was really about like looking at human challenges. And it was really looking about kind of unexpected conflicts. And it was looking about how like people interacted with this notion of faith during that time, whether like they felt that faith had answers or whether they felt that faith was inefficient to kind of solve their very real problems. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was to show that this is a complicated thing, even among the kind of like the most orthodox mm-hmm. and the most like, practicing of people. And, but if we're going to talk about like Muslim purity, if we're going to talk about like the purity of the Muslim identity, we should really recognize that this is a rarity. And like, if you, really are a practicing Muslim who's very happy in their practicing state and you've never had these conflicts, like that's probably because you have like a pretty good life, right? And that's probably because the people around you facilitate that good life so that Mm -hmm. you don't have to deal with that conflict. And, you know, it's so important in this political climate too to sort of bring out these complexities of Muslim life and Muslim online life. And it you know, I know you said that you wrote this book for the community, but I think for the rest of the world to see Muslims in this way is mm. very important as well because the, there's yeah. this idea that Muslims are always orthodox and uh, just 
just a monolith and and that's something I fight against in my work too and I started off as a blogger about sexuality in Pakistan and that was one of my goals is just to show um, that sexuality is a very human thing. There's so many things that we all have in common with our impulses and yeah, and things that people wouldn't apply to Pakistanis or Muslims. And, you know, there there are so many stories that I wrote about that people were just like, oh, my God, you know, orgies <laughs> happening in Pakistan or, you know, um, girls wanting to talk about blowjobs and cunnilingus and things that just you wouldn't hear from coming from that region at all so that was one of my goals and that's what I think uh was I don't know if it was your goal but that was something that I think that was important that came from your book too yeah it wasn't necessarily my goal I just wanted to like tell people's stories as like authentically as I could Mm -hmm. and it was more of like an exploration into kind of how faith that like faith perspectives that really differ from mine mm-hmm. um still have like a place in this conversation um and they yeah, still have it's, like it's so right. important to 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 show even to show muslims how yeah. not one-dimensional muslims are exactly right? and i think that's that was like if there was actually a goal i think it was that it was like yeah and I think about my parents a lot and I think about how even though they're like practicing Muslims, they grew up as like practicing Shias mm-hmm. and they know very little about like some new context of things and the things that they do know, they're kind of like, well, it's inauthentic anyway. It's like almost that like they can't fathom ideas of like mm-hmm. other Muslims existing and having different kinds of experiences and coming to different conclusions. That's um, so interesting as uh, coming from uh, a minority group, right? I, I right. haven't heard that. Right. Because and usually like, yeah. you hear that they're living in a Sunni world and Yeah. But it's like it's you know, you can avoid like, you know, they've avoided them, right? And yeah. like in a way that I haven't, in the way that my sister hasn't, you know, because we've kind of had these different experiences. Like my parents grew up in, you know, a place where everyone was like a East East African Asian Shia. Um, you know, growing up running family businesses where obviously you're surrounded by those people, no real incentive to like go to any kind of Sunni masjid or anything, especially when the people who run them are like Pakistani or they're like Somali or Nigerian and stuff. Um, you know, it's very remarkable how easy you can kind of avoid those types of confrontations that can make your own sense of like Islam really unstable, mm. right? So sometimes people do this for reasons of kind of like self-protection mm. like self-preservation um they're really scared of like well what happens if like the foundations of my faith suddenly shake it's also why and i'm sure again you've heard this too like so many madrasa teachers and stuff are like don't let your children like study philosophy um or don't let them study politics because it might like deter them away from um you know deter them away from like the, the message of islam or so just let don't let study, girls you know. study too much even right or like only let them study if they go if they become like met like doctors and even then make sure you move so you live close to them which is something that like one of these very notable islamic youtubers has actually said on record so the fragility of religion with the power and all knowingness it's supposed to have that juxtaposition is also something sure. i've uh been fascinated with for a long time even since i was a little kid really you know yeah, don't sure. question allah but also allah you can't say even the slightest thing because it'll upset him yeah for sure so. <laughs> and um the other thing i wanted to uh talk about was your article about butt stuff 
<laughs> about Muslim anti-Muslim bigotry relating to not wiping asses. That... Oh yes, butt stuff. Yes, yes, butt Bidet, stuff. Days and everything. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so that's an angle that I've come across a lot in the anti-Muslim hate that I've seen online. Yeah. And that and the fact that you know in the atheist scene, I have this one avalanche of hateful. Uh, people one day like talking about how um, Muslims are dirty and uncivilized because they eat yeah. hummus with their hands or something like that. And yeah. then I remember like it became this big uh, discussion on the online, you know, Twitter atheist community where pe some people were like, oh, well, come on, what about chicken wings and fries and pizza? There's so many examples, but no, it was just different when Muslims did it with their pita bread and their, you yeah. know, it was so fucked up. And so it kind of relates to that as well, like portraying them as this barbaric, um, uncivilized group of people. Uh, I knew this person once who, online, who I thought, you know, if I just talked to them reasonably would yeah. um, just see how stupid this line of, hatefulness is right they would be like oh you know muslims don't even use toilet paper i hear and like it's like really it depends on where they are what they have available to them are you going to see um instructions for using toilet paper in the quran and the hadith no um yeah. because it didn't exist back then <laughs> so <laughs> um whatever hadith you're pulling up right now whatever it's mentioning is not up to par with your hygiene standards today for a good reason. Yeah. <laughs> it just didn't exist then. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, I've heard this uh, a lot, you know, Muslims use their hands. It's like, what are you using when you're wiping your butt with toilet paper? You know, yeah. I I'm fascinated with the idea of like politics like bathroom politics, right? Bathroom politics. Like, as in like the as in like politics sort of like in um kind of enacts and materializes in places that we don't expect but are also the most intimate to us. Which is why yeah. like the bedroom is like a very important place when we talk about politics. Um bathrooms are also the case and like, you know, that's very much the case when we talk about like trans rights and stuff right now. Um yeah. but like the butt stuff is the butt stuff with like wiping and everything is really interesting because it exposes kind of like racial disparity and it exposes like a kind of like very visceral form of like racism um that is guised as like an type of intellectual exercise of like you know if you're civilized you just use toilet paper and if you don't then like you use water and like the first thing is like a logical thing which is like you can use both right like you can use yeah. you can use toilet paper and then you can use water and that way you like not only are you really clean but like you know you can feel like you know you're not kind of like itching all day right oh. <laughs> the second thing is also like if we're talking about like hygiene and this is particularly the case when we're talking we would think now about like coronavirus but also just like other microbes that pass um i did this story a couple of weeks ago about how many how much like cash like paper cash like how many kind of like um how much bacteria oh my gosh and, like the older that a paper note is like the more bacteria it holds because so much of our paper cash and coins and everything well, this kind of stuff keeps me up at night right but the the, the the fact is is i think that if everyone knew how much bacteria just exists in like our day-to-day -day lives few of us would actually like leave our house 
um i think the second thing that people like certain people get like disgusted about is more like the idea of like touching your butt which is weird because i think to myself well, one like how do you have a shower mm. <laughs> uh, what do you do in that shower like i'm very worried if like you're not washing in there and there are like some people who just don't like, this reminds me of one of those Reddit relationship yes. uh, Twitter posts where this girl posted about her boyfriend who said he refused to wash his genitals because he thought it would be yeah. gay or yeah. something. Right. Or like guys who are like, who or people who like genuinely just like think that, you know, the water will clean it for them so they don't need to ever like, you know, put their hands in those types of places. It's like, that's not how things work, man. Mm. Like, you know. <laughs> um, so I think it kind of exposed a lot of kind of, misunderstanding of what cleanliness actually means but it's also combined with this idea of like the other and the idea that like oh these people that like, use a more basic method to kind of clean them stuff they don't like you know they use uh like you know they use just like water i mean i didn't even know how to kind of describe it other than like i think it's just like this fear of difference that is combined with this kind of long-standing orientalist fear of like foreigners bringing in diseases and mm. viruses and stuff and you know it feeds into a lot of kind of like anti-refugee rhetoric about how like if we let the refugees in there's going to be like um and lots of kind of like eco-fascist and environmental fascists say this right but like you know we care passionately passionately about the refugees but like they come from a place where like there's a hot climate and if they come here and they don't acclimatize then like it will introduce new diseases and it'll be like a public health risk Oh wow! Um, and it's kind of like that's you know that's that's not concern, dude. That's racism. Mm. Uh, <laughs> uh, but this is something that like they just refuse to acknowledge. So they kind of they, they package like old school racism in new ways, which is kind of disguised more as like public health. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Disasters and stuff, right? Yeah, you were quite detailed in describing the 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 watering can, I guess, the lota. Yeah. <laughs> and that you find in most Muslim bathrooms. Though in Saudi we had um Yeah. We had those Muslim showers which is like a little yeah. spray, I guess, which you, which are now all like hip and yeah. trendy now, right? Like it's funny yeah. how it's coming back to like, oh check this great invention out. You know, it's like a little shower right. you can install well, right by your toilet seat. Well now well now what's interesting is that with like the whole kind of like invite like people being more concerned about the environment now, um the kind of like all these bathroom companies like are kind of saying oh well this kind of bathroom comes fitted like with a fitted bidet right mm -hmm. and that bidet means that like you'll save a fortune on like buying toilet paper and you're going to be like and it'll be much healthier for the environment to kind of use some mm. water to kind of clean it rather than using so much toilet paper um and i'm kind of thinking to myself like this was once like i used to be embarrassed about friends coming over in case they saw like the watering can or yeah. they were wondering why like there was like a big kind of like two liter water bottle like yeah yeah bottle. like having to explain um, why you're carrying a water bottle right. into the bathroom and now in my flat i have like a uh, i have one of these kind of like bidets that are attached and even then i sort of get worried when people go and use it when friends go use it and they see um and they see and uh, like they might ask questions about it but the thing is none of them ask questions about it they know what it's there for yeah and, and then, it's funny because it crosses over when you're ex-muslim also right like it's just how I was raised it's not right, exactly a religious exactly. thing it's just like yeah it's, it's so like you know one of those questions about one year ex-muslim like do you just like give up using lota like do you just go use toilet paper like that must be a really weird experience well, for you you know what's funny experience. they had one of these ex-muslim hashtags trending on twitter I, I don't remember what the exact hashtag was maybe like yeah, yeah. I, think I, I think i think i know what tweet this is. there was this one dude who was like saying like 
oh yeah, when I was Muslim, you know, I used to wash my ass, like, oh, I was OCD, like, so much, like, it was funny he was saying it like it was a bad, like, it was a bad thing how clean he was or something. Jeez, yeah, and I remember, like, everyone was just, like, tearing, like, tearing him up. Yeah, everyone, like, <laughs> everyone made fun of to, him. You know, and he had to clarify, and was like, I do clean my ass, actually, it was just, like, it was so funny. <laughs> It was it was so so funny. <laughs> when you're so badass and atheist, you don't clean your ass. <laughs> um, yeah, good stuff. And uh, yeah, so that kind of leads me to the last thing is your um, trolling of anti-Muslims, which is so yeah. beautifully done most of the time. Like, I mean, sometimes I just don't even get what you, get what's going on there. Sometimes, like, you're way more uh levels of be, ironic than i can digest yeah, sometimes it can be, like a bit too meta <laughs> um, there's like so many levels to it that i just uh, i'm lost yeah but... i also promised i promised i promised myself i would stop this year and like i just haven't done it like i feel like whenever i'm bored my my brain just goes into like weird places and i can just like i know that i can piss someone off <laughs> and you actually get like some people who truly believe what you're saying like you put out these tweets like you know work in a what like was it a coffee shop or a soup right so, so you know so so there's like a really good daily beast piece about this which isn't about me but it's about like the format of the tweet and the whole piece was started when um some off-duty police officer went to starbucks and ordered like some sort of drink and they wrote pig on it right as in like all cops are pigs stuff like that oh yeah 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 and was like oh i ordered i just ordered a frappuccino on my day off and this starbucks employee wrote pig on my uh on my cup and it went super viral and like starbucks had to investigate and this branch was like well actually no this didn't happen because we checked the cctv and we found out that like the cop actually wrote pig on himself and stuff and put the kid and the, and the cop got dismissed and everything. But um, Kelly Kelly Whale, who works with the Daily Beast, who's a very, very good reporter, she wrote this long piece about why like fake service story stuff always goes viral and always makes the wrong people really mad. And I think this is where like so much of like my stuff came in because I think, you know, I've done various tweets along the lines of like, you know, I work at like a coffee shop and like I sold, I missell white people, I overcharge them and I only give them soup. And that was like based on this joke about this like, joke online that like coffee is a kind of soup and like just the fact that it's one of those things that everyone gets really mad about um so it was like combining one joke that everyone gets mad about with like another thing but then it resulted in like me getting a bunch of hate mail because they were like oh we should find this person's cafe and get them fired <laughs> um, and then me responding well i can't be fired because now i'm the boss i just got promoted <laughs> and then not like not knowing if it's serious or not and i think part of it is because i have a blue check so they kind of like think that i take myself really seriously um, one of the things that like so many of these chads get really mad about is like that they don't have blue ticks. So to the point where they they kind of like think it's an insult now to be like, oh, you've got a blue tick. It's like, yeah, but like you just didn't fill out the form to get one. Like that's yeah. not I'm not sure what you think that like if you think this is an owner, whether like this is just an indictment of how dumb you are. Um, and then there's been other variations of it, like, you know, working at a doc, working as like as a, as a doctor in like a fake hospital and like secretly converting babies to Islam when they're born, when their parents aren't <laughs> looking. Uh, there was one recently about, um, shit, I can't remember. There was another one that was in that vein, but it was kind of, it always starts in the same way, which is that like, I love working at this institution where I do this thing, uh, which 
is morally questionable and somehow turns everyone to Islam. Oh no, the third thing was really funny because it was like so fucking stupid that even I was surprised that people believed it, which was that like I took I took a picture of this English pub called the Saracen's Head in Bath, and when I put a picture next to it of like the Hagia Sophia in uh, Turkey, and I was like, I love working as like a uh, contract surveyor and secretly turning English pubs into mosques. Here's our latest project. <laughs> um and that got so many people really mad because they were just like why is like this muslim taking over pubs and everything so like you 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 kind of like latch onto these kind of institutions that people have like a lot of what you call it um emotional attachment for and you just present this really stupid story that doesn't make sense and you'll have like at least a few boomers who get really mad about it except in my case like sometimes they've gotten so mad that like they make these like really long videos about it or oh really Funniest thing that happened was with the doctor one, there was a guy who's like quite a notorious like Brexit English Defence League guy who made this like 15 minute video. And the video is so funny because like for the first half, he's just like, so I just found this tweet by this doctor who says that he secretly converts babies to Islam without them looking. This is the state of our NHS. And then halfway through the video, he's like, I got my mate Dave to come check this out. And he went on like my LinkedIn page. Right. And my LinkedIn page obviously doesn't show that I'm a doctor. It shows that like I'm a journalist. Right. And he's like, so my Dave, did, so my friend Dave did some digging and he found out that this guy isn't even a doctor at all. So he's just been messing around with us. Um, but then he was just <laughs> rationalized by saying, but you could understand why I get so angry because I wouldn't be surprised if this happened. And this guy, he's just trying to like fan the flames of racial hatred. So it still somehow became my fault. That, it's like, your he fault. Fell yeah. For, he fell for this like incredibly stupid thing <laughs> anyone could like have seen was fake. Um, but it's really bizarre when like you see like people actually responding to it and people actually taking it seriously and people like going as far as like calling this kind of like fake hospital. Like when the, when the doctor thing happened, which was like the thing that caused the most stress, I was doing a fellowship in Albany in New York and I had done this tweet at like two in the morning in Albany because like I was stuck writing my book. Oh man. I was messing around on Twitter. I wake up and like, I woke up to a phone call from St. Thomas's hospital in london oh my gosh <laughs> so there's this tweet going around and there's one been a bunch of calls to us because they think that you're this doctor who's like secretly converting babies oh, and like i know that this was a joke but you need to take this down because like this might put people's like you know this might put kind of like people's well-being at risk especially because we're a hospital and i'm like shit yeah absolutely yeah. take it down now sorry i didn't really think about this i thought that it was like so obviously fake especially because the hospital name was fake so, um, uh, oh my gosh. Yeah. Right. Then you're like, what have I done? Right. And my big worry, which is like something that other people bring up is like, well, what if someone like takes this, what, what if someone who isn't kind of like mentally all that, like takes this seriously and acts on it. And then like, will you be responsible for mm. all this? And I'm kind of like, actually that might be the case. I, I don't want to think I'd be responsible for it. Cause like, you know, Again, this is just obviously like bullshit. Again, the, like, these stories are so ridiculous. Like, right, they're so ridiculous and stupid that anyone should be able to kind of consider how fake it is. But then you also yeah. remember at the same time that you live at this time when like so many people will just believe anything that they read online, particularly boomers, right? Particularly like people, and also particularly people who are just like... Not, not so like, online. Like mentally unwell or like people who kind of like don't can't differentiate between like what's a joke and what's serious um so then it brings on this question of like well how responsible should you be for like but i i guess the point i'm trying to make is that it's hard because on the one hand i've always used humor as a way of like deflecting 
like people who are like very openly racist and openly yeah. like Islamophobic yeah. and stuff. And I've always found that it's been a much more effective way than trying to be earnest because when you yeah. try to be earnest, they take advantage of that. Whereas if you treat them as if like they're as dumb as they actually are, yeah. then like it kind of like defangs them a little bit. Exactly. But then what you realize is that you might be able to like do that with one person, but it only takes like one QAnon person mm. to like take a gun somewhere oh, or to kind of God, read that's... something, be convinced that like a Muslim takeover is actually happening and that's to take horrifying. as right? So it's kind of like now I'm so, sort of trying to think of like, how can I kind of like still stay be funny or like do funny things so then you make it more ridiculous like i don't know put unicorns in there or that yeah, you know, maybe so no you, one will believe it right, you, and then what's the point of doing that but then on the other hand it's also just like for all the kind of talk about like how the left censors free speech it's like yeah. well i'm now like censoring myself because i'm yeah. afraid that one of these like right-wing dickheads is going to like it's right-wing political correctness that you're afraid of right and you were like, and, so, and you were basically like self-censoring for that reason. Yeah. Though I read kind of, one of your most recent uh, ones, which was pretty funny, I thought, um, <laughs> about the coronavirus <laughs> <laughs> infects people uh, and I, makes I was, them no, no, become Muslim. <laughs> I was thinking about that when I was driving, and oh I was just, I, 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 I stopped on like a side road so I could tweet out. because I was like, I'm gonna forget, I'm gonna forget it when I get home. It's so, so bad. It's so. Hilarious and so bad. It's oh my god. I was like cringing and laughing and oh. Did you get anyone <laughs> believing that you're actually no, infecting no, I, anyone? No, I think that was like a bit too far even for okay. them. Okay. Um, okay. See, so that's good then. Yeah. So, but I also kind of think that like number one, I need to come up with a new shtick, and number two, I need to do one that like isn't necessarily like so um, damaging or like so kind of preposterous. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean. It's a good, I, you know, trolling bigots is just, it's very satisfying. And as you said, it defangs them a bit. It makes them look stupid. But then there's this new added perspective. Now you've just put in my mind of what if someone right. really believes there's a Muslim takeover and doctors are secretly converting babies. And right. oh, my gosh. Like, and, if, and if you're someone on the left, like you end up like for whatever reason, like you end up having to like be responsible yeah right because like the right-wing people like just don't give a shit right exactly. like they just like you know if someone kills themselves like someone kind of like puts themselves in harm harm's if way they're like, touting anti-immigrant sentiment and someone uh you know acts on what they say it's not yeah. they don't give a shit but if right. you you know you're trying to be you're trying to do the more responsible thing and i guess not do that or do it so ridiculously that no one believes it even though you know it should be obvious. You're, yeah. yeah. The the standards for the like, left and right are very very different. Right. They'll still blame you, or they'll still say that like, oh well, like you knew that like there's all these like tensions, so you shouldn't have put something out there anyway. And the fact that you did means that this is your fault, and it's not our fault for like making like setting out these like making these tensions and like um, profligating them for like years and years. That's not our fault at all. So, I don't know, it's like a lose-lose game. and It is a lose-lose game with the right. I mean, how do you deal with people with no principles, no, uh, you know, values that are consistent, that are shameless in being hypocritical and... Yeah. <laughs> it, it's just hard to do. It's hard to compete with that, right? Because if you don't yeah, care, sure. uh, then you'll do anything. Right. You'll 
be an open hypocrite and it won't matter. You'll be inconsistent in your principles and it won't matter. And uh, uh, you'll be unfair and uh, yeah. you'll want to censor people while complaining about other people being unfair to you and wanting to censor you and it won't matter. And then the left will be like, oh, yeah, let's try to be fair and responsible. And, oh, well. Yeah, basically, yeah. I mean, I don't know what else to say. I think you've, like, hit, or you've hit, you've, like, hit the nail. Yeah, <laughs> basically, um, good times. So yeah. on that uh, happy and uh, totally undepressing note, it was so awesome talking to you again. Come back and we'll chat about if you're if you're being a, a woman on virtual reality as a Muslim, if you need to <laughs> cover up or not. Anytime. Well, it was great. It was great being on. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, well, you take care. Will do. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to another episode of Polite Conversations. You can support this podcast by sharing the shit out of it, making some noise about it, or contributing via Patreon. Patreon.com forward slash nice mangoes. No Ian mangoes. Also, you can follow me on Twitter at nice mangoes. If you want to make a one-time donation instead of a monthly Patreon one, you can do so via PayPal nicemangoes.blog at gmail.com. Remember, no Ian Mangoes. If you've got an interesting story and would potentially like to be a guest, you can email me there too.